A novel of consuming terror. Today on Dumpster Book Club, we're talking about The Bog by Michael Talbot. I'm Sean. And I'm Mimi. And this book is kind of weird, but mostly normal. For this episode, we also have a little bit of extra content that we will put at the end of the episode. Mimi and I both read some non-dumpster horror books. Books we actually picked out that we want to read. (laughs) So if you want to hear that, it'll be after the music at the end of the episode. Anyway, let's look at this very impressive cover for a pretty unimpressive book. It's another horror book with a little peekaboo cutout. There's a word for these kind of covers, but I can never remember it. But it's the kind where the the outside's thick and textured, and there's a cutout, and then there's another picture on the inside. But this one is incredibly yonic, (laughs) where it's trees and vines being spread apart, and on the inside, there's a... a bog, and then up near the top middle is an eyeball. Yeah, and I think the, the the trees and whatever form, like, black hair, and it's like a, a lady with a lot of makeup looking out from long black hair. Oh, I guess. I feel like it being a vagina on the front actually <laughs> fits a lot of the themes in the... Because, uh, like, giving birth to the thing and... yeah. But that also just looks like she's got long hair. Uh, Yeah, okay. And on the inside, you can see that the lady with a lot of makeup is actually half of a skeleton. (laughs) What? (laughs) Oh, sorry. I was just wondering if... I was trying to remember if you read the tagline that's on the inside, too, or no. No. There is another tagline that, that spans both the covers... On the outside, where horror lives. And on the inside, evil never dies. Does that even make sense for this book? No, I like a novel of consuming terror much more. (laughs) That's a great tagline. They didn't need to. Well, the other funny thing about this book is that it just says THE BOG in all caps three times on the back. On the back where you have the synopsis, every time it says the bog, it's in all caps and centered and interrupts the paragraph. I also wanted to point out the only two review quotes on the book anywhere from Publishers Weekly. Exciting. (laughs) And from Ocala Star Banner. Convincingly original. (laughs) And that's it. That's one way of putting it. <laughs> Did you hear that noise he made? <laughs> I did some research on Michael Talbot, and I don't think I really finished, but let's see. He was apparently um, openly gay and living with a boyfriend. And I didn't know that until the end, but it does explain, I think, my interpretation of some of the weird relationship things in this book. 
It also explains the laborious descriptions of the attractive male characters and then the very curt, quick descriptions of the attractive female characters. Yeah. Where it goes on and on about a character's hair and their muscles. And, and then... Their, their facial hair and... <laughs> Um, and then his his wife is hot, I guess. No, well, there was the, the like, Julia is supposed to be super sexy, and she's like, she was so beautiful. <laughs> uh, so I was looking at some of his other works. He wrote some nonfiction, which, from reading this book, the best parts, I thought, were the non-fictional parts like here's some information that stuff was way more interesting and way better written than the rest of the book there's a really funny quote in my copy of the book not in your copy um that says arguably his most famous and most significant work is the holographic universe which examines the increasingly accepted theory that the entire universe is a hologram oh he's one of those we're living in the matrix people Yeah. But before the Matrix. Then everything else that I found about him is from sites like Thinking Aloud, like A-L-L-O-W-E-D-Aloud.com. You can buy, like, DVDs of him lecturing about holograms Hmm. or, like, conspiracy websites. Um, And then I also found a site... That was all about gay spirituality, and he's got a big page on there. Michael Talbot, gay mystic and visionary. And it sounds like he uh, had, like, out-of-body experiences and paranormal experiences, but his explanation for that was hologram theory, which... It sounds like his nonfiction is probably way more interesting <laughs> than his fiction. Yeah. Um, also, the holographic universe you can read for free on the internet. So, might be my next read. Mm, no. <laughs> um, he died super young at 38 from leukemia in the 90s. At like, was at like the height of the AIDS epidemic, and he had a sense of humor about it and was joking about how he was dying from a disease that's really out of fashion right now. <laughs> but um, kind of sad. Th- that's it. <laughs> <laughs> well, the end. He died. Aww. You ready to get into y- the bog? Yeah. So our main character is David. He's an archaeologist slash professor who focuses on bog bodies. So those are people that fell into, like, peat bogs and have been preserved for hundreds or thousands of years which is a real thing it's not made up and that was some of the more interesting stuff in this book i mean it just goes on for pages about bog bodies and where they're found and how they're made and stuff like that yeah stuff was cool but david is also kind of (laughs) annoying he loves knowledge also, after being an archaeologist, he has, like, superhuman perception or something like that. <laughs> it, in, like, the first chapter, we're just told that. But, yeah, he's got lots of fun facts about prehistoric sloths and Babylonians and all this other stuff. that, Which just, is cool, but I don't need to hear your fun facts all day, man. <laughs> okay. Like, if you want to talk about these things, that's cool. But if you're just spouting off facts that you know... <laughs> 
So then there's Melanie. This is David's wife. She studied like art history or something, but had to give up on all of her dreams to be a stay-at-home mom. Which she's not actually mad about, kind of. She does like being a stay-at-home mom and like her husband and children, but also somewhat resents them because she had to give up on her dreams. But she does not... She's not very good at communicating her feelings to her husband or her kids, especially concerning these issues, where I feel like if she just talked it out, she wouldn't have all these problems or they could come to a resolution sooner. Yeah. I think a lot of aspects of their relationship just felt like they were relying on stereotypes of a straight married couple. And like even the first chapter starts with them like complaining about how she's hogging the sheets, (laughs) hogging the blankets. Yeah, she's the stay-at-home mom, but she wants to do her dreams too. And then, I don't know, they're like, whatever. But they're both pretty, they're both willing to meet halfway on things if they would just talk about them. Like every time they talk about a problem, they they meet somewhere in the middle and come (laughs) to a solution. But Melanie just waits until she's considering divorce with David to bring up the fact that she wants to go back to art school. Yep. And David does that thing where, like, he doesn't want to worry her, so... Yeah, David hides a bunch of information because he doesn't want her to get too upset. But it's like, he could just talk about it. She's... a grown adult yeah when handle this and when he does she like freaks out a little bit but then you know they work together then there's brad the sexiest man he's david's sexy assistant and everyone is in love with brad everyone has the hots for brad including the villain (laughs) (laughs) melanie their teenage daughter probably david definitely david (laughs) Um, but what's really funny, uh, Michael Talbot spends a lot of time just describing how sexy he is, but he's just an awkward nerd. (laughs) Yeah. He doesn't communicate well. He kind of just looks at his feet all the time and shuffles. Yeah. He's like very shy and reserved and it like takes them a while to, if they've been apart, David and Brad have to, like, work things out, and, like, then he'll open up again. But I think it's intended for him to be mysterious. (laughs) But it's not. He's just an uncomfortably awkward nerd. Yeah. And then then there's Katie, who's their teenage daughter. She does very little in this book. She is of no importance to the book, other than she finds Brad attractive. The only interesting fact about Katie is she has two posters in her room. What were they? One is for Duran Duran. Oh, yeah. And the other is for the Jackson 5. (laughs) Which are not... They don't go together. In my mind, at least. I feel like there's a a gap. When you're a kid. But then there's Tucker. Tuck. Who's the favorite child. He's like, what? Like six years old or something? Mm -hmm. Yeah, David has a moment where he's like, man, I like Tuck a lot more than Katie. But also Melanie likes Tucker more than Katie. <laughs> he's just the better kid. But he's not better. And the book likes him more. He's so annoying. And he He's very annoying. It was kind of weird. 
weird too because it was like katie seemed like also a very good student like she's always into books and like reading and like doing her homework and tucker just like wants to stay up late past his bedtime secretly playing video games with the sound off and stuff like that okay just a brown noser (laughs) (laughs) well and there's ben the dog who i kept confusing with brad who david and melanie both like but also dislike a lot they'll say they like the dog but then their actions yeah show that they do not care for the dog very much they're always grumpy about the dog mostly he barks to tell them that there's danger and there's always danger so <laughs> so the book starts with david getting a call from oh no it starts with a prologue yeah of, from what 50 bc mm-hmm. a girl's being sacrificed to the bog then the book starts right and david gets a call from brad that he found some great bog bodies oh boy so david and his whole family have to move to this shitty town next to the bog and melanie has a bad feeling about it this is one of those things where like melanie really didn't want to move they didn't want the kids to have to go to school in this weird bog town weren't they within driving distance like david drove back to oxford in like a day yeah it seemed like maybe an hour or so commute which isn't that bad they could have stayed where they were whatever there was no other option they had to move So from here, maybe try to formulate what you think is going to happen in this book. Get a general idea, base it on some stereotypes of horror that you know. You don't have to know exactly how it ends, but, you know, what are, what are the beats going to be? What's the villain? And we'll come back and see how close you are how it fits into your vision of what a horror story about a bog should be. Maybe pause the podcast. <laughs> think about it a little bit. All right. Got your hypothesis ready. <laughs> they get to the town. It's spooky. Uh, everyone looks sickly and moribund. No one wants to talk to them. They go to the local bar and meet Winnie, who is the closest thing to a townsperson character we get. And she seems like she wants to warn them about something. But then the other townspeople hush her up. And I guess there's other like spooky, ominous news about a girl getting shot in the back in another nearby town. There was some foreshadowing, but also a lot of red herrings, so... While David and Brad are working on the bodies, they meet Grenville, the Marquis de Isle de Grenville. Yeah. Who is a spooky old rich man, and he lives in a giant old castle on the bog. Everyone seems afraid of him, and I think someone warned him about Grenville, and like they kind of built him up he's like a really angry guy or a really scary guy um yeah but he's really nice to david and even allows david to stay in his hunting lodge for very cheap yeah and then david has to get his permission to continue their bog dig and uh 
his this big thing like oh he's not gonna let you do it he's too mean and then he finally calls grenville and asks about it and grenville says he'll let him do it on one condition you have to hang out with me and be my friend (laughs) so he seemed more lonely than anything else (laughs) and the hunting lodge is this giant wooden house it's very creaky and spooky and full of cobwebs but they manage to hire a live-in house helper named miss comfrey her name is miss comfrey <laughs> i'm sure her childhood was not filled with ridicule <laughs> Yeah, so she's from the next town over. David really doesn't like her for some reason. Mostly because she smells. <laughs> she wears too much perfume. He like he also just like comments on how he doesn't like how she looks. <laughs> and then that, that there's like he thinks her eyes are like empty and soulless, and all she cares about is doing housework. So oh, and then she's always reading stories to Tuck. And David's, like, constantly getting mad about that. So they have a few uneventful nights. David continues working on the bog bodies. But Ben, their dog, is going nuts. He's (laughs) barking all the time and whining all the time. Um, And instead of dealing with the problem, David just... It's like, that's it. You're going outside. And then Ben gets really scared. And this poor dog is just freaking out. And then there's, they all hear the dogs like squeal and then suddenly just stop making any sound. And, uh... And Ben is gone. <laughs> this, this is pretty much entirely David's fault and for throwing him out. <laughs> he would have been fine if they kept him in the house. He doesn't even feel bad. The dog was destined. A dog <laughs> in a horror book is destined to go. It, being in the house would not have saved the dog. Uh, um... There's a lot of really uh, awkward, stupid scenes where David has to talk to Tuck about death and says some really lame things to comfort him. And he goes back and forth on whether he should tell Tuck the truth or whether he should hide things from him. And and it was stupid. Then... Also, it seems that no one other than Tuck cares about Ben disappearing. David doesn't at all. He's just annoyed that Tuck is sad about it. Yeah. But Melanie doesn't really care that Ben is gone, and Katie doesn't even mention it. The book doesn't even mention Katie. She's (laughs) she's probably doing her homework or something. (laughs) So now, would you like to update your theory on how you think this book is going to go? Maybe you have an idea of a villain. We don't really have very much in, more information here, but we're about halfway through the book. Um, okay. David and Brad keep digging bodies out of the bog now that they have permission from Grenville to expand their search. They uncover Roman bodies, uh, which is a big deal. They're in England. These things are old. Yeah, bog bodies are super well preserved, so it would be the best preserved ancient Roman clothing and artifacts. Skin and, like, facial features and, like, everything is preserved. Oh, yeah. All the bodies have mysterious bite marks. And David and Brad do a bunch of guessing about what they could be, but this is clearly not their area of expertise. They probably should have got an expert on this a lot earlier, but instead they're like, 
David says, maybe it was a badger. And then Brad says, that doesn't make any sense. And then David's like, no, 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 wait, hold on. And he spends several pages explaining about badgers. And then he's like, actually, wait, that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, the bite marks seem to be kind of like what a cookie cutter shark does, where it just like takes a cylinder out of the person. I thought they were just looking at like gouges on bones, which how would you even know whether that's an animal or a weapon? It was in the skin, too. Oh, okay. And then he could tell by the tearing or something that it was teeth. Well, they didn't think of cookie cutter sharks. No, they didn't. The bog was full of cookie cutter sharks. (laughs) That would have explained it, but... (laughs) And then David and family, I guess just David and Brad and Melody, Katie and Tucker don't go. Yeah, they have Miss Comfrey to babysit. Um, Finally have to go hang out. Their obligatory hangout with lonely Mr. Grenville in his spooky castle. So here we meet Julia, who's a random, mysterious, sexy lady. There's no explanation about who she is. She's just there. So they go over to dinner at Grenville's and he has the most beautiful spooky castle. There's fancy tables and crazy dishes and portraits all over the walls. All the portraits have tiny curtains over the faces. They have a 30-course meal. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But it's all meat, so Brad can't have any of it because he's a vegetarian. Yeah, the ingredients listed were, like, stuff that sounded so expensive and it's from all over, but there's no vegetables. And they all get to drink super special bog water, uh, some kind of bog wine. Which I would definitely not drink. If you told me it was wine made of bog water, I would not drink that. Um, Well, it's apparently a very powerful aphrodisiac. There was a funny quote from the dinner party that I wanted to share. Just how awkward it kind of got uh, after they're all really drunk on this bog water wine. And horny from the bog water wine. David laughed and noticed that Melanie was beginning to grow uneasy over Julia's flirtatious attentions. He looked back at their host, and to his surprise saw that Grenville was also cognizant of Melanie's reaction. Furthermore, he was aware that David had noticed that he had noticed. David was beginning to realize that Grenville was an unusually observant man. Well, everyone's noticing all this noticing. Um, and then uh, then David goes outside with Julia while Melanie stays inside with Grenville. And Brad sits quietly. He just waits. And while David's outside with Julia, of, of course she tries to seduce him. But David loves Melanie too much. So even when he's horny and with a hot lady, he still would never betray his wife. Yeah, his family life is too comfortable right now. Too good for this one time that I'm horny and there's a hot lady <laughs> at the same time. So then, um, oh, then there's a centaur. <laughs> and then a centaur appears. <laughs> a gray decaying centaur or something. Yeah, it was a little bit different than a centaur, but basically a centaur, uh, which scares David so much, and he tries to run away. But then the centaur just walks into the bog, 
and David just decides he's going to follow it. Yeah. <laughs> just goes into the bog alone to follow this centauri saw. Meanwhile, back inside, Melanie... Is horny and mad. <laughs> yeah. That David is gone. Because she's assuming that he's off with Julia, so... She's like, that's it. I'm leaving. And he can walk home through the bog. She's kind of messed up. Yeah. It's in the middle of a storm, too. Yeah, so she drives Brad back. He just quietly sits in the car. (laughs) (laughs) Doesn't want to cause any problems because she's clearly upset. And um, then he leaves to go back to the campsite. And then Melanie is alone in the house and regretting this decision to come back alone because uh, there's something sp- spooky outside. Yeah, it's almost the exact same scene as in Hobgoblin with the black anus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where there's something going for the front door and Melanie realizes that it's not locked and she has to rush down the stairs and then she locks it. And then she hears a go around to the back door and she has to run. But then like, oh, there's a window. Don't want to see me. Know that I'm down here. And then she almost makes it to the back door, but then it opens. And it's Brad, but an even sexier Brad. If that were possible. (laughs) Uh, So then they have sex. And it's the best. Greatest sex. Talk a lot about Brad's muscles. And his sweat. <laughs> they describe him pumping, which felt really uh, weird to me. Yeah. Uh, then David gets home, and Brad disappears in a puff of smoke. Yeah, it doesn't hide. He like, whoosh, and he's gone. Melanie's still covered in all their fluids. They clearly had sex. She didn't imagine that part of it. All right. I think it's about time we updated all our uh, guesses and assumptions of how this book will go. Maybe take some time. (laughs) Think about what will happen next. All right. So. So nothing comes of the sex currently. David doesn't notice. Or it just cuts to the next day. They have a lot of um, awkward relationship talks and... But Melanie doesn't say anything about it. And David doesn't really say anything about her leaving him in the bog because instead he went to go chase the centaur. But he never found the centaur. Well, he was super weird because he doesn't want to tell her about the centaur. So he's acting like he did something bad or doesn't want to talk about it. But she does confront him and and then he gives her the whole speech about how he almost was seduced but... He loves her and the kids too much to cheat on her. And she feels bad because she was seduced. But, like, David's too upset about this centaur thing to, like, dig into what happened between her and Brad. And then, seemingly out of nowhere, David befriends a young town girl who just shows him the feeding ground of old Bendy. <laughs> Why is it called that? <laughs> so it's, it's supposedly a monster that she knows about. Called Old Bendy. And the feeding ground is just a part of the bog where the townspeople tie up sheep. There's a bunch of bones and it smells really bad. So David decides to go back there at night because Old Bendy only comes out at night. 
Um, and he sees the monster eating a sheep. And the monster is really funny. It was so stupid. This is the best monster he could come up with. Okay, so it's like all gray, and its head looks like a pillowcase full of concrete. <laughs> he describes the head of this monster. That's the analogy, is a pillowcase full of concrete. <laughs> with a... A cookie cutter shark mouth, basically. Yeah, the mouth is just a circle of teeth. And other than its head and the fact that it's so large, the only other thing described about it is its massive dong. (laughs) Yeah, it's massive and sagging sexual organs, (laughs) which are human in design. (laughs) Thanks. So from that, it's clear that it was a male, is what David says. Um... He watches it eat this sheep and then poop. <laughs> and that's when he realized that the reason that the entire bog smells bad is because of monster poop. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... And he's like, he realizes he's laying in the poop. Yeah. He's like, oh, gross. <laughs> oh, and he finds a poop with, like, bits of his dog in it. Oh. So... Okay, so then it notices him. He shoots at it with his gun that he has now, and it just kind of, like, starts to heal itself and chases him. He's got to run, and so he heads straight to the church. I think it was just the nearest building to where he was. Okay. But he was hoping that maybe it would provide sanctuary and it couldn't get in, but the priest quickly tells him, like, no. He's like, I don't know what to do. Uh, so then the priest is like, just, you know, just trying stuff. The priest was praying for, cause he thought he was going to die. Oh, okay. But he says, hallelujah. And that has an effect on the monster and it runs away. Which was also funny. Cause while we were reading this book, I've recorded like three people covering the song. Hallelujah. <laughs> It's just incredibly topical to my life while reading this book. Uh, Yeah. Oh, yeah. The priest and David together just chant hallelujah over and over to make it Chase it back into the bog. Okay. So here's your final chance to guess where this book is going to go. After this, things get revealed too fast and you didn't figure it out ahead of time. You didn't figure out the twist. If you don't get it now. Um, yeah. So right after this, everything is explained. So Grenville knows that David saw old Bendy invites him over to explain. Or he invites him and Melanie over to explain. He invites them over for a session of exposition. And <laughs> uh, so, yeah, this old Bendy is a demon. Julia is the demon. And there's a big thing like, okay, but what about the big old ding dong? <laughs> and Grenville says, well, technically she's a male spirit, but can take whatever form. And if if old Bendy or Julia can take any form at once, why is its main form just pillowcase full of concrete big old dong? <laughs> I don't know. And yeah. <sighs> if it wanted to just live eating sheep and people could be a wolf or a dog or chupacabra 
or something. But if that's its like default form, why does it spend the rest of its time looking like Julia? And why do they keep calling it Julia? Why is that? Is that its name from olden <laughs> times in the uh, demon realm? No. I would have immediately like, oh, you're not Julia. I'm just going to call you old Bendy now. Oh you're God. old Bendy. And then they still always refer to it in female pronouns, despite Granville emphasizing that it's a male spirit, but also it's a demon from another realm. Yeah, what does technically a male spirit mean? Technically. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. But then there's another part where Granville tells David that Julia finds him very attractive. And he's like, wait, but you said technically... She's a male. That's gay. <laughs> and Grenville. You just watch Julia eat a sheep and then poop immediately. <laughs> yeah. Dave is just really concerned about how big its dick is. <laughs> it's too big. <sighs> so, anyway, this is all kind of dumb. Okay. Also, Grenville is a sorcerer and he's. Super old. He measures his age in millennia. That's <laughs> what he said. That's right. Um, so he also explains his entire evil plot, which is that, I don't know, the people in the town, like, are all weirdos and... They're all inbred. They're all too inbred, so he has to bring in more people to breed with the townspeople so that there can be new people that will cook his tendies. <laughs> this is the only way he can think to do that is to like trap. Well, even David isn't like total, like doesn't really believe that that's his plan. It's a pretty, it's not a very good lie. <sighs> um, well, anyway, then Grenville takes David on a time travel adventure. Grenville really wants David on his side. He really wants, David, this is a great thing. Your, your family's going to live <laughs> imprisoned by me, but I can show you the world. And then he breaks into song, yeah, takes, then, them, takes them on a flying carpet, yes. they go into the past. Uh, yeah, so he's like trying to offer what he thinks David wants, which David does want, which is like unlimited knowledge. And, uh... So we go into the past and we see... See Stonehenge getting built. Yeah. We see some ancient Mesopotamian wars and some tablets. Yeah. And that really blows David's mind. It wiggles his jimmies. But... It's kind of messed up how well this works on David. Like, I can understand really wanting to know stuff in mysteries. But if someone in one sentence says, hey, I'm going to make your children intermarry with all these inbred people as part of my plan, but I can tell you how Stonehenge was met, was built and tell you all these historical mysteries. How is that even tempting? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, well, David struggles with it, but then he decides his only choice is that he has to drive to Oxford, learn about demons really fast, and find Grenville's weakness. So he does that, and Grenville, of course, immediately finds out that he did that because he has spies everywhere. He doesn't really find anything to help him, except that he overheard Grenville talking to Julia in some language he didn't know, and the other professor he was talking to recognized the language 
That's all he found out. Yeah, and it turns out hallelujah is a word that comes from that language. So, and then comes what I think is the only true horror moment of this book. It wasn't so scary or anything, but it had tension and it had, it was kind of well done. Okay, which part? So, Melanie is without David and she's feeling, she's sick and Miss Comfrey's there and the kids are there and she is feeling so weak. Miss Comfrey also keeps like force feeding her tea. Yeah, and it's slowly dawning on her that this tea is is making it worse rather than helping. And then she sees Miss Comfrey bathing and under her clothes she's like a rotting corpse. And she's got wounds in her back. Wait, was she the same as the person who got shot? I'm assuming she was the gunshot victim. Okay. From the town. Melanie gathers the kids and they run to the car and Miss Comfrey slowly walking behind them telling them it's no use, you know, you can't do anything about this and I'm just here to help you. And then Melanie's trying to get the car started and (laughs) Miss Comfrey's just slowly walking up behind them and then they get the car going but then she drives into a muddy ditch and you just got to get the kids back out of the car again (laughs) and Miss Comfrey's just still slowly walking and then um, Melanie just beats her to death with a bat like <laughs> into a bloody pulp and it's it's pretty awesome like you're like yeah go melanie yeah that was the closest this book ever got to horror yeah pretty much after this like the revelation everything was too goofy yeah but yeah th- this miss comfrey was this like dead corpse this whole time why was she always doing stuff like telling Tuck we have to put food out for the goblins and like she was really into King Arthur? Yeah, it's supposed to be that she was being controlled by Grenville, but she had a little too much autonomy in being a weirdo around the house. <laughs> Another big thing that happens at this point in the book is that David brought the kids to the bog um and he he needed to like do a little bit more research into those roman bog bodies because he thought that they might have the secret to this whole mystery which they kind of did one kind of, of yeah. one of them has a, a demon fetus inside of it um but tuck gets scared and runs straight into the bog <laughs> just immediately starts drowning <laughs> and so david dives into the bog after him and is just swimming around digging around for him for a full 35 minutes finally grabs onto his little shoe and pulls him out attempts cpr and it turns out tuck is still alive after 35 minutes in a bog Mm -hmm. but he's obviously in a coma and so then they have to take him to the hospital at first grenville doesn't want to let them take tucker to the hospital and he's like you can't go and dave's like my kid is dying and he's like well no. i'll take katie as insurance and dave's like yeah sure okay fine <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's not like no problem with that sure. but melanie's also fine with that they just let him take katie as insurance do you think grenville was driving back he's like um oh, i don't know if this is gonna work <laughs> they might just leave I'm surprised they didn't. <laughs> oh, great. Got out of that scot free. Um, okay, so back at the hospital, Tuck finally wakes up 
but he's got brain damages. He doesn't recognize his parents and like he can't speak English. He just kind of wanders about the house when they bring him home, kind of confused. They're like teaching him things all over again. At the same time, David uncovers the plan where Melanie is pregnant with a demon baby from Julia. And the reason Grenville wanted him on his side was because he wanted David to make it okay for Melanie, which is like, you should probably be trying to get Melanie on your side because she's the one that has to give birth to the demon. Well, it sounds like she wasn't going to survive that no right. matter what. Um, and Grenville realizes that David's just not going to let it fly, so he just takes Melanie and Katie, but who cares? <laughs> Uh, and just tells David, you know, sucks to be you. I won't kill you, but don't do anything. So just David and Tuck hanging out. And then he realizes that all this nonsense that Tuck is saying is actually the the language of the blah. And the language Grenville and Julia were speaking and where Hallelujah comes from. Yeah. It turns out that Tuck died or left the body and now his body is possessed by urza baba who is another magician from millennia ago who was the teacher of grenville and then there's like a fun montage of david and urza baba teaching each other things (laughs) learning each other's languages and cultures they become great friends and David gives him a little tracksuit that he was going to give to <laughs> Tuck. And yeah, Urzababa has to like train to rebuild his powers so that they can together take on Grenville. And the reason they that Urzababa is helping David is because if this demon baby is born, Grenville will be so powerful and will be able to take over the world and he can only, a demon baby can only be born every 2,000 years, so he has to do it now. Yeah, all of his powers comes from his pact with the demon. And there's also a ruby that he wears around his neck. And that is... It, like, seals the deal. Yeah, so he has to have this ruby, so they're gonna get the ruby. Their plan is to... Their plan is Urza Baba is going to put everyone to sleep in the castle. And then David is going to run in and steal the ruby and give it to Urza Baba, which will give Urza Baba the powers over Julia and make Julia kill Grenville. And then they'll send Julia into the demon realm away. Yes, but there's only 10 minutes that this spell will work. So we have this arbitrary timeline and david messes it up because he spends like nine of his ten minutes trying to get his asleep family out of the house and into the car i don't understand his thinking wouldn't you get the ruby and give it to urza baba and then you you've won and then you get your family at your leisure yes that makes way more sense but i think he thought that grenville would wake up and then do something bad to his family if they were still in the house so so he brings them outside the house to the car but then he doesn't have enough time to confront grenville and he he like grabs the ruby but grenville's awake and he just throws it out the window and grenville's shooting fireballs everywhere and julia's turned into her pillowcase full of concrete form and is beating up urza baba which is just the body of tucker yeah and his family doesn't even escape because he forgot to give them the car keys (laughs) 
But good thing David has his clever wits so that he can have a discussion with Grenville and Julia. And it turns out that Julia didn't know that she got Melanie pregnant for some reason. And Grenville wasn't telling her because he's planning to replace her. With the baby demon. Yeah. And that's it. Now she's pissed. So she kills Grenville. Nurse like, Baba wakes rips up. Rips all his limbs off of his body. <laughs> And then uh, Urzababa sends her to the demon realm, where we get a, a quick glimpse of some Lovecraftian demon land shit. Yeah. All right. Then the epilogue. The end. Uh, Melanie has an abortion. There are no issues. No one <laughs> really cares that it's a demon. There's a part I thought was really funny where Urzababa, he's still in Tuck's body, and David is, like, sad that Tuck is dead. And Urza Baba tells him the exact same stupid lines that he told to Tuck when he was, like, sad about Ben dying. (laughs) (laughs) Where he's like, everything has a beginning and an end. That's why flowers die and leaves fall off the trees. Uh, But it comes off as kind of mocking because (laughs) David very much didn't care about Tuck's dog dying. Yeah. But I think this moment was supposed to be emotional. But because the, then um, David realizes that the, those are the words that he said to Tuck. And Tuck is still alive in there. And Urzababa gives him his body back. It was also funny because David says, I'm glad Tuck's back, but I sure am going to miss Urzababa. <laughs> <laughs> And Tuck is fine, but he's also wiser. He spent some time in the astral plane or outside the universe. And then David is very concerned that his son is going to be smarter than him someday. (laughs) The end. Did did anyone get the twist? (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny because... There's a lot of reviews of this book. Compared to most of the books we read on this podcast, there were relatively more reviews on this one. A lot of people complaining about how predictable the ending was. Whoa. Why wasn't it just, there's a bog monster, and it's killing the townspeople? <laughs> we gotta get it. Do you have any other thoughts about the bog? Oh, yeah. Grenville just seemed like he was really bad at planning And he was supposed to be so smart and so powerful. And, like, if he needed someone to have a child for him or cook his tendies, like, the amount of money that he had alone probably could have solved those problems. Yeah, I'm sure he could have just paid someone to be a surrogate mother. On top of that, he also has superpowers. I don't know. I feel like he made a lot of mistakes, but... Anyway. Melanie's interesting in this book because she's a character for half of it. And then she disappears. And she comes back for that quick scene with Miss Comfrey, which was the best scene in the book. And then she disappears again. But really, she's the center. She's the one that gets impregnated. And she's the one that has, like, is going to give birth to a demon. I would imagine the horror story would be centered on her. Like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant (laughs) with this demon. And I got to stop this thing from happening. But instead, it focuses on David, who is like, oh, my wife's pregnant. I got to go save her. But 
Infinite knowledge? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Throughout the book, there are also some intermissions following the ancient Romans, who are the bodies that are getting dug up by David and Brad. And they're dealing with the same issues that David and his family are. Uh, the The Roman's wife gets impregnated. People are getting killed by some weird monster with weird bite marks. Um, and really, it's just there so that all these insane jumps of logic that David just makes on a whim can be true without the <laughs> yeah. any speculation on the reader's part. And he's always like, I don't know, trying to relate these Romans to his situation with Melanie because it's like a, some Roman like military leader and his wife. He's like, wow, he probably dragged her out there. Melanie does the same thing too where they're like these bodies and then they just like project their own situation onto them but then it's accurate and exactly matches what happened (laughs) and I think the book would have been better if the Romans had come forward through time to help David and Melanie defeat Grenville instead of introducing this new character Urzababa who's a wizard yeah right at the end or if the flashbacks had been to ancient mesopotamia and we had known about urzababa from the beginning like if he was studying some wizard and they found one of his tablets in the bog or something or even if it wasn't like necessarily them their spirits helping him or like if he had actually learned the solution himself from studying the bog bodies that would have made the most sense for his character to defeat grenville by learning some history or doing some archaeology instead of just punching him in the face or something. Despite all of our criticisms of the book, this is the easiest book we've ever had to read for Dumpster Book Club. Yeah. It's written in a very simple, quick style where this book is 305 pages or so, which is much longer than other than Hobgoblin, most of the books we read, and it took us half the time it normally takes. I think I was done with this in two and a half weeks or something. But we flew through it. But that doesn't mean he's a good writer. <laughs> no. There were some incredibly bad analogies throughout this book. Is that just a horror thing? No. Okay. Because the- the- Hobgoblin had terrible <laughs> ones. I feel like Stephen King doesn't have the best analogies. Or, uh, I don't know. I don't know. He could have come up with something better than this. That I don't know. Okay, so I tried to just take a few examples. Chunks of Miss Comfrey's shoulder started to fall away, revealing her decaying insides, which possessed the consistency of a sort of crumbly cheese. <laughs> like a tasty feta or something. Just a dead body full of cheese. That's That's not so bad. It's like gross. It's like gross, but also like, I don't know, crumbly cheese. That's something that's kind of delicious. <laughs> okay, okay. So then uh, the next one. It was as if someone had embedded little rods of steel in the center of the bones in his mouth and was moving a powerful electromagnet all around him. Hmm. Because that's mean, exactly we, what the pain felt like. And that's something we all know exactly what that feels like. We didn't mention earlier, but anytime Julia appears, she makes your teeth hurt. And the explanation for that at the end, when the mystery is solved, like, man, why have my teeth been hurting at all these 
key plot moments. It's the pull of the demon world. It makes your teeth hurt. I don't remember. It didn't seem like it was solved. It didn't make sense. It's just like an unsatisfactory explanation for this thing that was supposed to be a mystery all along. Okay. Then there was another analogy, which was to explain that David finding these bog bodies is like the highest achievement in his career. And it said, perhaps akin to the feeling a painter experiences when he puts the master stroke on a great work of art, or a photographer who, after years of work, captures that one ineffable moment on a roll of film. Like, sure, but we didn't really need two explanations <laughs> of people in other fields doing a significant accomplishment after they just described over and over how good of an accomplishment this was for David. Yeah, it doesn't really drive the point any farther. There were some that I thought were pretty funny. Um, Brad grinned proudly, but with a modesty, not unlike a child who has just surprised a parent with a handmade valentine. (laughs) (laughs) This is Brad showing David the two bodies in the bog. Look, I made these from macaroni and paper plates. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the weirdest one is when David tells Melanie that there's a rat in the house. Her flesh crawling as if someone had drawn a dead lizard across her breast. <laughs> Man, I know exactly what that feels like. <laughs> But aside from his incredibly awkward analogies, he also just used words that were unnecessary. There's one point where he describes the furniture in the house as lugubrious, <laughs> which is which is fine. That makes sense for old-timey furniture in a spooky house. But the problem with the word lugubrious is it doesn't sound like it's meaning. That furniture sounds delicious. <laughs> sounds like a sweaty ham of furniture. <sighs> and then I think he uses the word existential incorrectly twice in this book. Uh, specifically because he's saying existential horror, but it's literal horror. There's a monster. <laughs> he's not afraid of the meaninglessness of his life. He's afraid of a monster. (laughs) Well, yeah. So while I was reading this, that the analogy you gave of of Brad giving David his handmade macaroni valentine, there was a lot of stuff like that. Kind of stood out to me. So I took their interactions from chapters one and two and just cut it down to create my erotic novel version of the bog. (laughs) What's the title? Love in the Bog? (laughs) Bog Love? I don't know. Bog Bodies? I don't know. It's a working title. 
he found Brad standing beneath a tree, framed by a sheath of fog that made him look very much like the ghost of Hamlet's father. The younger man spotted the car coming and waved. He was tall, standing over six feet, broad-shouldered and slim but muscular, with a mane of shiny black hair and a neatly trimmed black beard and mustache. He might have looked Mephistophelian had David not known him to be one of the quietest, most gentle individuals he had ever met. When the two of them were heavily into a project, they worked as if they shared a single soul. The thought had lingered in his mind for but a moment when his attention returned to the matter at hand. Now, why don't you show me that body, he said. (laughs) Let me get you some boots to put on first, Brad replied. He ran into his tent, then returned with a large rubber. David looked at the young man, still shaking his head in disbelief. You've really outdone yourself, Brad. This is more than I could have ever hoped for. I'm speechless. Brad blushed uneasily. Brad grew even more modest and uncomfortable, and David looked at him, marveling at his reaction. It was not that David thought he was taking advantage of the younger man. What amazed him was that Brad could be so humble about it all. Brad seemed to read his thoughts. I have something else to show you, he said, and David noticed that the younger man had an uncharacteristic sparkle in his eye. He gestured in the direction of one of the other holes. David looked down. He shifted his weight, and his boots squished softly in the mud as he leaned closer. What he was looking at was the side of a human thigh. Why didn't you tell me, he exclaimed. I thought it would make a nice surprise, Brad grinned proudly, but with a modesty not unlike a child who has just surprised a parent with a handmade valentine. David continued to just stare dumbly at the human thigh. His mind was reeling. He found himself swept with two very different feelings. He was thrilled at the realization, but he was also filled with misgiving, for he knew that he would now have to confront Melanie. Brad grunted from exertion. Brad looked up at him and smiled, and it struck David that the slight tension between them had dissipated. He looked at Brad and saw that the younger man was filled with the same apparent misgivings. Well, here goes, he said. He was about to turn to Brad to instruct him to proceed when the younger man smiled knowingly. I know, he said. David was excited. He looked over at Brad. He could tell that the younger man was also filled with anticipation, and this caused David to once again look down at the rubber that he held in his hand. But in spite of Brad's withdrawn nature and occasionally grating humility, David knew he was very lucky to have him as an assistant. He was not contentious. He was totally devoted and hardworking, and he was bright but quiet about his brilliance. David fought down his own selfish feelings and decided it was only right that he allowed Brad the honor. Would you like to take over from here, he said. Brad looked at him unbelievingly. You mean it? David nodded and smiled. Overwhelmed, Brad took the rubber and positioned it as David went behind the table and once again released the spigot. (laughs) (laughs) The liquid quickly gushed out the other end. As it streamed out, Brad moved back and forth in slow and rhythmic sweeps. (laughs) This is strange, Brad said, leaning closer. David's own interest grew keener, and he moved into position so that they could get a better look. Are you thinking what I'm thinking, David asked, disconcerted. David looked at the younger man but said nothing. Both knew that they were thinking the same thing. So that's chapter one of my erotic novel. (laughs) Ooh, did it get hot in here? (laughs) 
doesn't. This but, podcast got pretty steamy. I don't know. <laughs> the parental advisory. But this doesn't even get to the part. Melanie's like thinking about how Brad is not really interested in relationships with women and I'll, just anytime Brad and David are talking, they're like blushing and complimenting each other. And well, who do you think this book is for? Well, I don't think pure horror fans no. would like it very much because there's not really enough horror. And I would say children, but it focuses on the wrong characters. Yeah. I think you could really do a great kids horror if it was about Katie and Tucker going to school in this weird town and their parents don't believe them about this bog thing. And then there's this conspiracy with Grenville they have to figure out. Um, But there's too much weird sex stuff. The plot centers around like an unwanted pregnancy. Yeah. It's maybe a little bit too adult. But... I think it could be enjoyable for someone who wants a mildly spooky, mildly fantastic story that still takes place in the real world. It's super fast and easy to read, so yeah. and you don't have to think too hard while you're doing it, unless you're trying to figure out the end before it happens, <laughs> in which case your brain's going to be burning. I don't know. It's not good, but it's it was so easy a good october afternoon read (laughs) what about you who do you think this book is for i don't know i maybe someone who's really interested in bog bodies and just wants a few more tidbits of information about bog bodies there is Uh, already a pretty famous book about bog bodies though non-fictional or it's it's non-fiction but maybe if you wanted a fiction piece yeah read them both at the same time yeah um there are a lot of people who like this book, but I was trying to understand who they are, and I am baffled <laughs> by the positive reviews of this book that compared it to um, an adult Harry Potter. <laughs> and, like, everyone loves all the twists and turns, but the ending was a little bit predictable. Well, I guess it is, like, it is more fantasy than horror, and it takes place in modern-day England... I mean, it's, it's nothing like Harry Potter, but, <laughs> but I think there is an audience for people who like fantasy, but don't want epic fantasy or in another world. They just want a, just a little bit, some whimsy in their regular world. Well, did that. So I guess that makes sense. Really, you could say this is magical realism in the... <laughs> In the tradition of A Hundred Years of Solitude. Well, I think that's it for The Bog. If you'd like to join us next month, we are reading The Ginger Star by Lee Brackett. And you can contact us at dumpsterbookclub at gmail.com or join our group on Goodreads. So, as you know, Mimi and I are the experts on (laughs) dumpster fantasy and sci-fi books. However, I would not say that either of us are experts on horror stories and horror novels. We've read a few, and we've read a few of the classics, but it's not a passion of ours. So, 
we decided to read some horror books that we were interested in, along with these dumpster horror books, for fun and for yeah. for knowledge and learning and mostly for fun, though. Yeah, get in the spirit of October. So, obviously, these books are popular and have been discussed ad nauseum by people much smarter than we are. <laughs> but... We thought we would just mention the books we read. Do you want to go first or should I? I can go first. Okay. We picked these out independently and coincidentally both picked uh, Haunted House books. So I read um, The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson, who's an actually good writer. (laughs) (laughs) And reading this alongside these random bargain bin books we've picked up, like, made that really obvious. (laughs) Um... So Shirley Jackson, um, she wrote The Lottery, which was a short story published in, a, I think, The New Yorker, which drove people completely wild in the 50s. Um, you might have had to read this short story for school. I had to read it in middle school. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways to interpret it, and she left it very vague, so it's kind of perfect for that kind of thing. Um, have a class discussion. Yeah, <laughs> but it's basically a very short story about a town that has a tradition of drawing slips of paper out of a a box. The person who gets the black dot gets executed. Um, And people like lost their minds. Like, how could this be published? (laughs) And is this real? And where is this happening? And uh, I think she continued to get angry letters about it for the rest of her life. (laughs) Um, and and if you and if you read it it's pretty tame (laughs) yeah but she uh i think also said a lot of stuff that would get people riled up or she let her publishers run with things or exaggerate things in order to sell her work there was a funny marketing campaign that someone came up with at one of her publishers when she was releasing a, a book of short stories including the lottery where copies of the book would have a slip of paper and if you got the black dot in it that you'd win a prize but uh she was like embarrassed about that but said fine she could do it like she said that she was a witch and that she used black magic to break the leg of a different publisher and stuff like that she also s- told people that she wrote the lottery basically pretty much in one draft with you know just came out that way perfect and but i think there was a lot of evidence that she actually did spend a lot of time editing and she had a lot of thoughts about doing that kind of like revising and kind of perfecting things because a lot of her work it was published in magazines where she was trying to get the most impact in a short amount of words and i'm wondering if that kind of had like a really bad impression for other uh, aspiring writers that like editing is lame and to be a great ri- writer you have to be able to dump out perfect writing in the first draft because mm-hmm. i feel like a lot of these books we've read <laughs> could really benefit from just reading it one time <laughs> uh okay so yeah um other than the lottery i think she wrote a lot of other weird and spooky books and then a lot of psychological horror kind of centered around the domestic realm. Like a lot of things take place in homes or um, small towns and kind of center on um, women's stories and women's lives. And in addition to all this creepy stuff to make money, she also pretty much invented mommy blogging where 
she wrote cheerfully sarcastic humor articles about living with children and stuff like that. And I guess overall, she was a pretty big weirdo with a really sad life. Her relationship with her mother was terrible, constantly making fun of her appearance. And there was an article about her in like Time magazine and her mom. The only thing she had to say about it was how bad the photo of her was. And I think that shows up a lot in her writing that anytime there's like a mother-daughter relationship, it's pretty bad in her stories, like daughters killing their mothers or things like that. And then her husband was also kind of terrible to her and somewhat abusive, but he was also a writer and ended up really jealous about all of her successes. Um, And then, but he had control over all of her finances, so she didn't have access to her own money and couldn't leave the relationship. And then she struggled with anxiety, depression, and uh, serious agoraphobia, basically trapped in her house. And when she tried to get help uh, from doctors, she was prescribed a bunch of medications that were really commonly given to housewives, um, which was like a cocktail of amphetamines, barbiturates, and tranquilizers. She was also um, drinking and smoking heavily and ended up dying in her 40s from heart problems. So, um, that's my summary of Shirley Jackson. (laughs) And, yeah, so Haunting of Hill House seems like it inspired an entire genre of the Haunting of X House books. And I found some authors who almost exclusively write haunted house books. And they all have names that are the haunting of something house. So there's the haunting of hell house and the haunting of heck house and (laughs) heights house and called grave house, blackwood house, rookward house, spook house, radcliffe house, whaley house, seafield house, lamb house, gillespie house, billup house. And it just like went on and on. There's also a Netflix series coming out based on hill house that will probably be out by the time this episode is posted, but it looks like it's going to be terrible. So, (laughs) um, anyway. Okay. So Hill House, it was written in the fifties and it starts, um, there's Dr. Montague, who's a paranormal investigator, and he's trying to assemble a group of people sensitive to paranormal phenomenon to spend the night at Hill House, and he's hopefully going to you know, bring out some activity that he can study. Um, and he manages to get two people like that. There's Eleanor, um, who's our protagonist. Uh, she experienced poltergeist activity as a child. Um, she's highly imaginative as a character and becomes slightly unhinged by the end of it. Uh, there's Theodora, who's like a clairvoyant or fortune teller. And then the owner of the house says someone from their family has to also attend the session. So there's Luke Sanderson, the wealthy heir to Hill House, who is... Um, like a liar and thief and card cheat. And so there's a ton of stories like this now where a group of people has to go to a spooky house and spend the night there for whatever reason. And I think this kind of inspired a lot of those. And uh, I think with everything that happens, there's a ton of possible interpretations of what's going on because Eleanor is a super unreliable narrator So it's possible she's imagining everything or maybe she's mentally ill. Um, And then 
maybe Luke and Theo are just pranking each other the whole time, or maybe the doctor is messing with them for the study to try to get them riled up, or maybe there really is paranormal activity going on. So it's kind of um, left open-ended in a lot of places or multiple interpretations. So then Hill House has a pretty complicated backstory. In the movie adaptations, it's usually cut down, but it's like there's Hugh Crane who built it, and it's kind of like the Winchester Mystery House where he kind of built the house like a labyrinth, and there's no right angles, everything's slightly off, so you end up where uh, if you assume things are right angles, you get lost because there's kind of like weird geometry and rooms where they shouldn't there shouldn't be one, and things feel unnerving, like the stairs aren't even level, so you're always kind of off balance, and um, things being off-center also causes the doors to swing shut on their own. And then Hugh Crane had multiple wives all die in the house tragically, and eventually the house is inherited by these two sisters who kind of hate each other. One is living there and has this companion who's like, also really ambiguous what their relationship was and so my reading of it was they're isolated from the village and kind of shut in and just two women living together and the sister wrote into her will that she wanted her companion to inherit all of her property it's like seems like they're just lesbians trying to have a marriage in this house and like you know like ostracized from this village and stuff like that but then there's like there's kind of um a distinction between what the gossip was in the town at the time which is that the companion was maybe murdered the sister and then tried to steal it by forging the will and there's like a court battle with the other sister to try to get the house back and eventually the companion commits suicide in the house is that was she killed by the ghost was she tormented and ostracized by the town people because of their lesbian relationship it's unknown so but then eleanor also kind of maps her experience because she'd been taking care of her ailing mother and let her die and uh so so i think she kind of that kind of like emphasizes did eleanor did she murder her own mother Mm -hmm. she's like racked with guilt but then she kind of like makes a stories about it or like how she just didn't wake up and hear her mom tapping but and how does she know that she was tapping on the wall if she didn't wake up like she probably was awake and ignored it so but she tells it differently uh so just being an unreliable narrator but in addition to being kind of like a spooky creepy book i mean with this paranormal stuff and murder stuff that there's like a ton of satire and humor also worked in throughout it and um there are a couple scenes that i thought were funny like when the housekeeper is introduced she goes on this like huge over-the-top rant about how she won't stay in the house not after dark and she's she'll be miles away and no one will hear you and um then it's a little bit creepy when eleanor is there alone and listening to this but then the um the second person shows up at the house and she goes on the entire spiel again and they just kind of talk over her while she does it in the background and then another point dr montague's wife shows up and she's like um kind of like the classic 
fortune teller who's just kind of trying to read people and make their best guesses and um dr montague takes his job very seriously and wants to be taken very seriously as a paranormal investigator and his wife is there with like her planchette and she's just reading the history of the house (laughs) and saying like i'm seeing a nun and like he's like that's very common in paranormal stories but there was no there's no nuns in the history of this house and she's like no no it's there i'm seeing it and uh so stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) but who would you say that book is for well if you like haunted house stories this one's the best. It's like the mother of all haunted house <laughs> stories. But, um, yeah. Well, I read House of Leaves by Mark Z. Danielewski. Danielewski. He's got a long, <laughs> challenging last name to say. Um, and I don't really want to get into much detail about the book. Not that it can be spoiled, really, but it doesn't make sense to explain it. It's kind of just like a fun experience book. Um, It's a postmodern horror. So there's tons of different fonts. Things are written upside down. There's different (laughs) colors. There's pictures. There's all sorts of funny things in there. Um, It is, there's frame stories within frame stories within frame (laughs) stories. So I'll try to, give the basic breakdown of the frame stories okay so there's a haunted house that a family experiences okay one of the members of the family makes a documentary about their experience in the haunted house okay and then a person writes a scholarly analysis of the documentary but he doesn't finish it it's just a manuscript scattered all over his house and then someone finds this manuscript and puts it together but also adds their own information and edits it to make his own book and then a mysterious group of editors edit that book and that is house of leaves Okay. It's great because the different frames interact with each other and parallel each other in weird ways that will surprise you and you don't expect. The fourth wall will get broken or certain frames will get broken through and other frame stories will happen. Like one of the editors will tell a tangential story that has nothing to do with anything, but then somehow one of the other frames will break into that and it'll be related and everything's sort of, you know, muddled. And then on top of that, none of the narrators in any of the frames are reliable. (laughs) The people experiencing the haunted house are known to be liars. The documentary is known to be edited and faked. The person who wrote the scholarly take is blind, and it's unclear how he managed to watch a documentary. <laughs> the The guy collecting that uh, manuscript is insane, and then the editors have all their mysterious motivations. Yeah. So it's a lot to keep in your head all the time, but it's sort of like a fun experience. You wouldn't read it for the plot, because <laughs> there's not really... Uh, one yeah there's tons of mysteries and puzzles for you to solve there's codes throughout the book that if you're looking out for them you can find them and discover hidden messages all over the place one of my favorite parts of the book is there is a labyrinth of footnotes so in the haunted house a labyrinth forms and at the same time in the book the footnotes 
start leading you in a circular maze to a single footnote that has a bunch of branching footnotes out that you can try to escape the footnote, but you keep ending up back there. So you end up in this kind of cool footnote labyrinth that you can eventually get out of. And I I thought that was really cool. But I can imagine someone reading this thinking that sounds like the worst thing ever. So you definitely have to be excited to just read and experience things as opposed to wanting the next thing in the plot to happen. You have to be ready for the book to stop and then for one character to tell you a story about a boat sinking. (laughs) Or for one... For a character to list all the possible things that could be in a house (laughs) for pages and pages. And then finish that by then listing all the different styles of house, different famous architects. Oh my goodness. (laughs) This is a book you could read for a very long time. Like reread it? You could reread it over and over again if you wanted. And there's all these internet communities that are really into it. There's all this extra reading you can do because he references tons of stuff and quotes and relates to all these other books. I didn't, I only read what was in the book, mainly because I didn't think it was so great that I wanted (laughs) to keep reading other stuff. But if you are into it, this book, this could be like the only book you read for a year if if you were so into it. You can go as deep as you want. And I think that's important with this kind of literature and reading is you don't have to base your experience of something on someone else's rules. Like a lot of people say, oh, you can't enjoy this author unless you've read this and this before that. You won't understand what they're talking about. But you should just enjoy a book on its your own terms. If you like it, then that's enough. If you don't like it, then that's also enough. You don't have to... Uh, follow all the rules and it's really funny there's there's a forum there's a couple forums to this book but i saw (laughs) when i was researching it, i saw a post of this guy who said oh i read it in an afternoon i just skipped all the footnotes (laughs) it was great (laughs) and it's hilarious the book is 90 percent footnotes if you skip the footnotes it's like 100 pages um and the forum was furious (laughs) everyone was so upset but I think that's a valid way to read the... You can read the book however you want. Is if you He liked it. Yeah. He had a good time. <laughs> but then also, if you want to be the person that looks up everything and finds out all the secret messages and all the puzzles, then you can do that too. They're, they're fun. They're somewhat reward... Some are more rewarding than others. Some are just silly jokes. And I think for that reason, this book is better if you have other people reading it at the same time as you, like as a book club, or if you're just reading it together with a friend, because then you can talk about the different theories and puzzles and stuff. Whereas reading it alone is a little less fun, I think. I think it really shines as a book club book, where you can discuss it with someone in real time, because talking about it to someone else after the fact is less fun because there's so much. Yeah, the other main thing I wanted to address with the book is it has a reputation of being a bro book or a book for bros, which I was a bit concerned about when I first picked it up. But the book is not bro The problem is there is a character in here who is a bro. One of the narrators is a full-on stereotype bro, um, super obnoxious, but he's not a, supposed to be cool. You're supposed to dislike him. 
you're not supposed to identify with him, really. And I think this is a case of, you know, people saw Wolf of Wall Street and thought the Wolf of Wall Street was so cool. (laughs) And not, you know, a terrible guy who ruined his life and screwed everyone out of a bunch of money. It's the same thing with this. The bro is a terrible person. You're not supposed to like them. You are supposed to feel sympathy for them because their life falls apart. And they, they, they have a sort of redemption. But I think it's a similar case of uh, mistakenly identifying with a shitty character. <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to read a passage to show the true horror of House of Leaves. Right out of the blue, she said, I won't let you f- me. Time to get going, I thought. And began to stand up. Not that I'd expected anything, mind you. But if you want, you can she added. (laughs) I sat back down, and before I could think of anything to say, she had tugged off her top and stretched herself out in the middle of the floor. Her round, hard, and perfectly fake. Hard? (laughs) As I straddled her, she unbuttoned my pants. Then she reached for some extremely aromatic oil sitting on her coffee table. She squeezed hard enough to release a thin stream. It dripped off me, a warm rain spilling down over her toned belly and (laughs) Pleased with what she'd done, she settled back down to watch me myself into (laughs) At one point she bit down on her lower lip and it amped me up even more. Then she started to small groans of pleasure rising up from her throat. I felt the (laughs) boil. (laughs) Boil? (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) However, only when I got ready to did I lose sight of her, my eyes slamming shut. Something I believe now she'd been waiting for. A temporary instant of darkness where, vulnerable and blind to everything but my own pleasure, she could reach up beneath me and (laughs) circling, rubbing, until finally she pushed hard enough and knowing exactly where to go, heading straight the the On this stereophonic dum I never knew I had, initiating an almost unbearable scream for and of pleasure, endorphins splitting through my brain at an unheard of rate, as muscles in my groin almost painfully contracted in a handful of heart-stomping spasm, not something I could say I was exactly prepared for. I... Some of it one another she smiled only she didn't no sound, not even a breath, just her moon bright teeth where smiling, her eyes focused on mine, watching me watching her she This has been a very steamy episode. (laughs) 
Um, so this book is not for kids. <laughs> Who is this book for? It is full of graphic violence and graphic sex. But I think it is for people who like conspiracy theories because it almost reads like a conspiracy theory fan site. Mm. Seeing as how half the narrators are crazed. (laughs) Uh, Like I said before, I think it'd be great for a book club where you could discuss all the different things as they were happening. I don't think anyone who wants a straightforward horror will like it. It's going to stop you too many times, interrupt itself, get in its own way. It is, there are scary parts. There are parts that I thought were um, very tense or unnerving. It's also really funny um, incredibly sad, uh, inspiring. <laughs> you could say it was a tour de force. <laughs> anyway, uh, thanks for listening to us ramble on about <laughs> these books as well. I guess that's it. I'll see you next time. Okay, thanks. Bye.